You basically ate dog food. They would take their meat, John, and put it underneath their saddle. We could be called the Irish car bomb state. And then bartenders got in on it. That is a fancy-ass cocktail, Kurt. Make me something different. Have you ever had... Ugh. There was a monk in France who developed champagne. Put the lime in the coconut. Put the lime in the coconut. Put the lime in the coconut. Okay, it's time for Smart Dribble, everyone. Hello, this is your co-host, Kurt Schneider. And John Ellenthal. Do you know the next line, Kurt? Put the lime in the coconut. Yeah, it's supposed to be like, I think, a hangover cure or something. Maybe it was a panacea. I would like a panacea. So if you come across one, please share. I'd like an elixir, a magic elixir, which is a potion. You know what? How about some ambrosia, which is what the gods on Mount Olympus drink? Yes. So this is apt that we're starting this way, John, because it's a wonderful segue into today's topic of Smart Dribble. Today, John, we're going to be discussing famous cocktails and their origins. Sound good? You put the lime in the coconut, you drink them bought up. Yeah, both of them up. Drink them up. All right. I am ready to go. And this is not a topic that is brand new to us, although this is the first time that we're going to dedicate an entire episode to it. But you have previously told us the backstory of gin and tonic. I believe we've discussed the Arnold Palmer and how it became the John Daly. So those were just teasers, little breadcrumbs that we left a long time ago, all leading to right now. This is kind of like Laverne and Shirley, right? It's spun out of Happy Days. This is this spun out of a previous episode. Yeah, I guess in that way, there is something analogous. But in most ways, I think this is nothing like Laverne and Shirley. If okay. you were Laverne and Shirley, I think you would be squiggy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, give me one. I'm going to kick us off with an easy one, Kurt. Yeah. A drink that... All of our listeners have had, unless they are children or are liars, and that is the screwdriver. You, of course, have had a screwdriver, Kurt, yes? Oh, many times. When I was younger, yes. Yeah, I think it's got a bit of an entry-level drink quality to it because, of course, it's made of just vodka and orange juice. And did you know, Kurt, that one out of three cocktails ordered in the U.S. contains vodka? Ugh. Why are you so anti-vodka? No taste. There's nothing to it. Give me gin. Well, I think that's where the orange juice comes in. But okay. Basically, many decades ago, when American oil workers went to work in the Persian Gulf, yeah, when they went to work, they would often add vodka to their orange juice because maybe their jobs were particularly boring or maybe they were just feeling far from home. As and in breakfast orange juice? Or did they have orange juice, orange juice. juice. in the morning? Yes, of course, orange juice is not just for breakfast anymore, but I see your point. <laughs> they pour vodka into their orange juice on the rig. And since they didn't have a spoon to stir it with, they would stir it with their screwdriver. Screwdriver, Kurt. Almost said wrench. And that's why, yes, they would stir it with their screwdriver. And that's how the drink got its name. It's kind of a literal backstory there, huh? But I think that, yeah, I think it's fantastic. It reminds me of where steak tartare comes from. Well, of course, if you're eating steak tartare, it would probably be accompanied by a cocktail. So why don't you tell us about steak tartare and then go into whatever cocktail you'd be enjoying with it? Okay. So steak tartare, listeners, is basically raw beef. 
And when I was skiing in France once, I had steak tartare at lunch, made a big mistake because it was a pound of raw beef with a raw egg in the middle and onions. Oh. Anchovies. And it was so good. And I had a few glasses of wine and I couldn't move after that. I had what was good about it? You basically ate dog food. So steak tartare is so named because there was a clan of the Mongols during Genghis Khan's reign called the Tartan, Tartars, Tartars, excuse me. And these guys would rape and pillage and maraud and do everything terrible. They were terrible people. But what they would do is they would take their meat, John, and put it underneath their saddle. They were in a horse the whole time. And they would ride all day long. And the saddle of them going up and down would tenderize this meat until they finally finished. And then they would not have to cook it. It was all tender and they'd eat it. And that's where steak tartare comes from. I've never had steak tartare, even when I ate meat. I did once have the misfortune of being um, at a restaurant dining table with someone who did order it. And as, as if the thought of it weren't unappealing enough, watching them mix it table side made it even less appealing as if that were even possible. If you were having steak tartare today, what cocktail would you be having alongside it? Probably the cocktail I order more than anything else and our listeners would know. That's the gin martini. Now, by the way, gin martini is, there's a book, this wonderful book called Cocktail Hour that was written by this curmudgeonly I think it was a New York Times drink critic back in the 30s or 40s. And he makes the case for the cocktail hour being the greatest time of day because you finished your day. It's before the evening. It's twilight. It's wonderful and calm. But he makes the case that there's really only two drinks you can ever have. The gin martini with a twist or scotch or bourbon, something brown or, or rye. Neat. That's it. Anyway, the gin martini, where'd it come from? Well, there's a bunch of different stories. Three of them, as a matter of fact, that came mo that I've heard most. The first is Martini and Rossi, which makes vermouth, was trying to promote their product, vermouth, and they wanted a drink named out of it. So they added it to gin and said, it's Martini and Rossi. And of course, it got shortened to Martini. I don't like that. The next is like 1870s, Gold Rush, California, 1860s, Martinez, California. There was a miner who came in, takes a huge chunk of gold, puts it on the bar and says, make me something different. And he was on his way to Martinez. And the bartender made him this drink that he found. And it was called a Martinez, which then got shortened to Martini. The last one, and I tend to like this one a lot, 1911, the Knickerbocker Hotel in New York. There was a bartender by the name of Martini di Arma di Tajin. And there was a baron by the name of John D. Rockefeller who said, make me something different. And he made him this drink. And therefore, John D. Rockefeller would drink it every day thereafter, starting the three martini lunch. So do you like the third one the best because it just sort of, you, you think it's the most colorful or do you think it has extra historical accuracy compared to the other two? I think it's more, it's more colorful. Have you ever had a shot and a beer? Yes, I have, John. That drink is often referred to as the boiler maker. Yes. And it gets its name from back in the 1800s when workers whose job it was to build and maintain steam locomotives would head to the bar at the end of the day and in an effort to sort of erase some of the pains of the day and start to relax, they would have a shot and a beer. So the Boilermaker got its name because the people who ordered the Boilermakers were Boilermakers. So this is another story that actually has, that's a pretty straight line as far as stories go. You think that's the school drink of Purdue? There are some people that suggest that it's 
a bit of a hat tip to the hard drinking, heavy drinking ways of the Purdue student body. So can't rule it out. Can't rule it out. That's what a Boilermaker is. But there are debates around the best way to drink a Boilermaker. There are three popular ways. The first is to do the shot, then drink the beer. There are those that sip the shot and sip the beer until they're both gone. And then there's the third way, which is clearly the most exciting way, where you drop the shot of whiskey directly into the beer and you watch them do their crazy interplay while you drink them together. So, Kurt, a postscript to the Boilermaker is a drink that operates in much the same way called the Irish Car Bomb, Mm -hmm. where you drop a shot of Bailey's and Jameson, so Bailey's and the whiskey, uh, into a glass of a stout beer, preferably Guinness. And it creates this little small explosion as you drop the shot glass into the pint. And I mention this drink because it was actually invented in the late 70s in a bar in Connecticut, the state you and I call home. So we could be called the Constitution State, we could be called the Nutmeg State, or we could be called the Irish Car Bomb State. I think that probably is not the right way to go. The first time I had a Boilermaker, I was a junior in high school, and we had our fall banquet. And it was a tradition that the seniors on the football team would take the juniors on the football team out to this dive bar on the water. And it was way in, and it was a bar you walked upstairs, and you all, as a rite of passage, had to do these Boilermakers. Well, you know, that reminds me of something that I experienced when I was in high school. One of our friends was turning 18, and it was a weeknight. But, you know, a friend turning 18 is kind of a big deal when you're in high school. Sure. So a few of us drove a station wagon over to his house. We walked into his house, interrupting dinner, physically grabbed our friend, put him in a burlap sack, and put him in the back of the station wagon, drove to another friend's house where we had a party all night long, and the drink was called Harry Buffalo Punch. And the thing about Harry Buffalo Punch was it's a grain alcohol-based punch, which it was illegal in many states at the time. You pour the grain alcohol into a garbage pail. And the rule about Harry Buffalo Punch is whatever you pour into the garbage pail, the whole thing has to go in. So if you cut an orange, the orange goes in and the knife goes in. If you pour some Hawaiian punch in there, the can goes in there. So you have all of this flotsam or jetsam, you and I should know which one it is, floating at the top of this garbage pail, but it basically tastes like fruit juice. So that's hairy buffalo punch. It's like our jungle juice we used to have. And the thing is, never drink the punch. Because you can drink so much of it and not realize how drunk you're getting. Always. That's the advice you give everyone. Don't drink the punch. You think you and I should have a party and serve hairy buffalo punch? No. I think that's probably the right answer. I think that time has passed 40 years ago. Tell me the fascinating backstory of a popular cocktail. All right. I'll tell you the backstory of a Tom Collins. Oh. Funnily enough, a lot of the ones I've thought of are all gin-based because I happen to love gin as well. You are so, a gin lover and a bona fide card-carrying member of the Gin Snob Club. And Tom Collins is a wonderful drink to have in the summer. It's gin, fresh-squeezed lemon juice simple syrup and club so mixed and then with adding club soda to it it's refreshing it's delightful it's fantastic and it got its name because there was a viral fad in 1874 john where you would go up to a buddy of yours i'd go up to you on the street i'd say john have you seen tom collins 
And you'd say, what? And I'd say, I hear he's talking shit about you in a bar around the corner. You better go. He's like, what, what? And then you would go running into the bar and you'd say, have you seen Tom Collins? Where is he? And then people would laugh because, of course, there was no Tom Collins. It was funny. And then bartenders got in on it because when people kept coming in saying, have you seen Tom Collins or looking for Tom Collins, they decided to have fun with it. They made a drink called the Tom Collins to give to the people. That's an excellent backstory. The fact that people were making up stories about Tom Collins talking smack about you and that drove all sorts of... I think it was even covered in the newspapers, that whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. They all jumped in on it. I think they had fun with it too. So it was, they were really funny back then. Why don't we try to make up something like that and see if we can name a new drink? I mean, that might be our best shot at immortality, Kurt. If you and I could make a new drink that is enjoyed decades from now and we are the backstory, that may be our best shot. The smart drivel. Better to drink it with a swizzle. All right, Kurt. I mentioned the Irish car bomb and I'm going to stick with the Irish theme. But I'm going to go with Irish coffee, Kurt. Okay. So back in the 40s, Ireland, for some reason, was a big destination for celebrities and politicians. And there was a restaurant at the airport that received all of this inbound traffic. And as you know, the weather in Ireland can be a bit cold and rainy. So the guy who ran the restaurant, wanting to keep his guests feeling warm, he decided to pour Irish whiskey into their coffee, thereby creating Irish coffee. I love Irish coffee. And by the way, I know why it was such a destination, especially Shannon. I believe in the 40s, that was the only place in Europe you could get to on one tank of gas flying. And Shannon is the westernest most part of Europe, Shannon Airport. And so you can actually stand on Galway, the Cliffs of Moore, and look. And if you can really look, you can probably see North America. So I'm going to stick with my gin, my lemon juice, and my simple syrup. Gin snobbery alert, gin snobbery alert. But instead of soda, which is in the Tom Collins, I'm going to mix up that gin, that lemon juice, that simple syrup, in a cocktail shaker, I'm going to pour it either up or on ice, and then I'm going to top it with a layer of champagne. That, John, is a French 75, and I actually make them every Christmas Eve as a tradition. A French 75 so gets its name, and now this is a story I was always told, that the British soldiers during World War I, who of course would have a ration of gin, and they were looking around and trying to find something to add to the gin. They had lemons, which they liked. They had simple syrup. And they were in France. And they were in the Champagne area. So they had champagne they put on top. And they so named it the French 75 because it had a kick, like a 75 millimeter gun. I believe it was really, though, made in Harry's New York Bar in Paris in 1915. And many drinks were actually made and created and concocted first in Harry's New York Bar. You brought up a couple things. You said champagne, and I recall you telling me something fun about the origins of champagne. There was a monk in France who developed champagne, and his name, of course, was... Dom Perignon. There we go. So martinis, which you mentioned are a big deal to you, the gin martini. Would you like to comment on the James Bond Vesper martini? Because that must offend your sensibilities deeply. Well, it's a vodka. It's a vodka martini. Of course, James Bond has made the Vesper martini, shaken, not stirred, incredibly famous. In the books about James Bond, written by Ian Fleming, do you know how many times James Bond actually ordered a martini, shaken, not stirred? Three times. One time. Mm. So, Kurt, this is going to be a rhetorical question. 
So do not answer. Have you ever had sex on the beach? You did an excellent job of not answering. Thank you. There were some sandflies involved at one point. There are no sandflies in the drink, sex on the beach. But sex on the beach, let's go over the ingredients first. Sex on the beach includes peach schnapps, vodka, or known as the antichrist in your world, orange juice, pineapple, and cranberry juice. And it has its roots from a distributor of peach schnapps who was eager to get more peach schnapps sold through bars. And he put together a contest offering prize money to the bartender or bar that sold the most peach schnapps in Florida. So there was a Florida bartender named Ted Pizio who decided to concoct a cocktail that incorporated peach schnapps so he could win the contest. And he wanted to come up with a really suggestive name to make sure he sold a lot of them. And he figured that vacationers, tourists, and spring breakers pretty much come to Florida for sex and the beach. And he named it Sex on the Beach. I believe he won the contest. You know what? I think that's marketing, pure marketing, because that drink is awfully sugary. And ugh. yeah, I don't think we would enjoy the drink. And well, apparently, have you ever had? Have you ever had a woo woo? I may have had a woo woo, but I've never had a, a woo woo by the name woo woo. Woo woo is peach schnapps, vodka, cranberry juice, and I think triple sec. And in my fraternity in college, we would have a thing called room to room tales, and each room would put on a different drink. And I always served woo-woos. And I'd sit there with my friend, Dave Silky would come down and we'd go woo-woo and do a shot with each of these people. It got- oh, that's creative. Yeah. I hope when you actually were at the parties, you put a little bit more zest into the woo-woo than you just gave me here. Woo-woo! And as that's- the night went, we kept going more and more and more. I'm sure. So let's move from sex on the beach. Yes. To- well, how about the Negroni? Ah, uh, the Negroni. That is a fancy-ass cocktail, Kurt. And you know what? It's making a huge comeback. In fact, last year, 2019, it was its 100th anniversary. There used to be a drink, and there still is, called the Americano that they would drink over in Europe, especially in in Italy. And Americano is Campari, which is bitter, sweet vermouth, and seltzer water. And there was a guy who was a count. His name was Count Camillo Negroni. And in Florence, Italy, in 1919, he went into his local bartender and he said, listen, replace that soda water with gin, please. And the bartender did and named it after him, the Negroni. And it is a cocktail, which all ingredients are alcohol. So it packs a punch and you wouldn't know it. It's so delicious, but there's no, there's no mixer involved. So tell me the story of Manhattan, because I believe there's a Churchill tie-in to Manhattan, Kurt. Is that correct? So... In 1860s, there was a guy, Samuel Tilden, who became governor of New York. I think he ran for president at some point, right? He ran in 1876 and lost to Rutherford B. Hayes, even though he won the popular vote. First time that had happened. And he went to, there was a huge celebration party thrown at the Manhattan Club by Jenny Churchill. Ah. She, of course, went on to birth Winston Churchill. She was an American and she went over to England, married the Duke of Marlborough, lived in Blenheim Palace and gave birth to one Winston Churchill. I had heard, is this true, that she was actually pregnant with Winston at the time of that party that spawned the Manhattan cocktail? Could be. It was at the Manhattan Club and the bartender made this drink in order to fetch Samuel Tilden and it was put on by Churchill, as in Winston's mother. 
You know what? Fet is a word that, that's a word that should make a comeback. I love using fet. And meet out. I like that one too. M-E-T-E, we meet. No episode that discusses the origins and backstories of popular drinks would be complete without a discussion of the Bloody Mary. Ah, yes. I am a Bloody Mary fan, but I have very specific requirements of my Bloody Mary. The Bloody Mary mix has to be thick. There's nothing worse to me than a thin Bloody Mary. It's got to be thick. It's got to have a lot of horseradish. It's got to have solid stuff in there, Kurt. And of course, it has vodka, which makes me a little surprised that you're a Bloody Mary fan. Well, I like gin Bloody Marys. So the Bloody Mary has an unclear backstory, unlike the Manhattan and some of the other drinks like the screwdriver we mentioned. But it seems to trace back to an American bartender at Harry's New York Bar, which was actually located not in New York, but in Paris, France. And the bartender was the first to develop this drink. It was basically just tomato juice and vodka at that time. And a patron dubbed it the Bucket of Blood and apparently thought that had some connection to the Bucket of Blood nightclub that this patron had visited in Chicago. So it was dubbed the Bucket of Blood, and some believe that later became the Bloody Mary. And while the Mary part of the Bloody Mary is unclear, surely the Bloody part is clear, the Mary part, people think it may go back, maybe a little bit of a reference to Queen Mary, the English monarch whose nickname was Bloody Mary because of how many Protestants she burned at the stake. Yes. So a couple of things just to add to that. Please. First of all, I heard that when he was doing it, it was right after the Russian Revolution. And the all these Russian emigres settled the aristocracy in Paris, and they brought vodka with them. Vodka was not a big drink that people were drinking in Paris beforehand. And the bartender didn't know what to make. He tried all these different things with vodka. He finally mixed it with this tomato juice, which was called a tomato juice cocktail during Prohibition. And he came up with it. Then he went to uh, the Old King Cole Bar at the St. Regis in New York. And they say that they are the founding of the Bloody Mary, but it's called a Red Snapper there, not a Bloody Mary. And he made the Red Snapper. Now, the other thing is, don't go north of the of the 49th parallel, John, because if you don't like thin Bloody Marys, you will not like Canada's version, which is called the Caesar. And it's made not with tomato juice, but with Clamato juice. You ever had Clamato juice? Yes, I've seen that. And that doesn't sound like a great thing. I don't want to drink clams. But it's actually, it's just the juice of clams and tomato juice. And it's thinner, but it's actually a very good drink, the Caesar in Canada. You know what? I did not know that, but the drink which we now know as the Bloody Mary, was actually featured in a Life magazine article, Kurt, back in the early 40s, and they called it the Red Hammer, which sounds about right. Do you know where Margarita came from? Well, again, a couple of different stories. The one I like is they say one of the most beautiful actresses ever was Rita Hayworth. Her real name, Margarita Carmen Cancino. And she inspired a bartender to make this drink with her beauty, and he named it after her. The other reason, and I think this is probably what it really is, is there used to be a drink called the Daisy. The Daisy was made with brandy, fresh lime juice, and a little bit of Cointreau or else you want to put it shaken up. So it's basically a margarita, but with brandy. Someone changed it and put tequila in instead. And the name for Daisy in Spanish is margarita. And so they called it the margarita. So staying on the theme of margarita is the mimosa. Aha. And the mimosa 
which is making a huge comeback now. Every single like millennial goes to bottomless mimosa places now. For folks who are not familiar with mimosa, you know, it's sparkling wine and a fruit juice, typically orange juice. And it probably gets its name from a plant. There are mimosa trees that grow bright orange-yellow flowers that happen to be the exact same color of champagne and orange juice. So it is named after the flower on mimosa trees. I did not know that. That's why we have smart dribble, Kurt. So I think this is a good place, time to wrap up. All right. A bunch more we could talk about the Harvey Wallbanger, the Shirley Temple, the Bellini, the Mojito, but we're going to leave that for another time. It really is an incredibly rich category because cocktails do have colorful names. And I mean, other than a gin and tonic or vodka and soda, it's typically not a terribly descriptive name, but how about the mint julep or the white Russian or Mai Tais or Long Island iced teas, which is a crazy thing all by itself. Of course, the old fashioned, the daiquiri. So Kurt, I think we've reached that magic moment where we need to wrap up. Um, thank you for this conversation. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. We very much appreciate it. We will be back next week with another new episode of Smart Dribble. We hope you'll join us again. Until then, I'm John Ellenfall. And I'm Kurt Schneider. And we promise the dribble. And hope for the smart. Thank you, everybody. Arrivederci, yeah?